Well, I wonder if you can recall the moment when you were first introduced to someone who would change the course of your whole life. I can. I remember meeting my wife, Elisa, for the very first time. I can picture it still in my mind's eye. Many of you know that for years my parents were involved in campus ministry at the University of Vermont. They had a big old house next to campus. It was called Hedgemere House. And students lived there with them and other students would come and go as they pleased and do Bible study and and learn about Jesus. Elisa was one of the come and goers. She never lived at Hedgemere, but she was always in and out of my mom's kitchen. She was a medical student and she decided to get involved in their graduate student Bible study. Now, it wasn't very long before my folks started talking to me about this girl. This really smart, really lovely girl who had not too long ago been on to Uganda on a short-term mission trip. They knew I was interested in missions. And she started coming up in conversation enough that it felt like it was perhaps just a little bit intentional. Well, my reaction to that was a mix of, oh, brother, and, hmm, interesting. Well, I I was pretty busy. I wasn't going over to Hedgemere House a ton at that time. But eventually I headed over one evening because my folks were hosting a big dinner for students. And they invited me. And I knew, I can't quite remember how, they they must have been the ones to tell me, I knew that Elisa was going to be there. And I was a little bit late. I'm sure you're all shocked to hear that. I was a little bit late. And so when I got there, everyone was already seated in the dining room. And I turned that corner, and there at the far end of the table facing me was this beautiful girl. And I knew that had to be Elisa, because I knew everyone else around the table. And that night was the first time we met. And we chatted about missions and the little, little study, and we washed the dishes together. And, and I left thinking she was quite something. But it was my parents who introduced me to her. You might even say they, I, I think they steered me a little bit toward her. To this day, we joke that our marriage is 35% arranged. <laughs> now, you two can probably think of a time when you were directed to somebody, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a business partner, somebody who would have a hugely significant impact on your life. And today, in our passage of God's Word, we're going to observe just such a fateful meeting. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Ruth chapter 2, which can be found, if you're using the blue copies under the seats in front of you, I believe it's on page 223. If it's not, it's just a page or two away. So, go to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. And we're going to see how God himself is at work directing Ruth, who's an impoverished Moabite widow, and he's directing her to meet someone who can help her and who will change her life. But as we read this story today, I actually want to ask you to be willing to read yourself into the narrative. Because it turns out that you, just like Ruth, also need God to direct you to someone who will change your life. So, 
Be, read, be willing to read yourself into this story. But let's pick it up in Ruth 2, starting with the first two verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. All right, so at last, the main the character in our story is introduced. Boaz is described as a worthy man. That word can convey a number of different things. It could mean, in some cases, it means prowess and valor in war, like a mighty man of valor. Or it can just mean someone who's a capable man of means, who's in a high position and high standing within his community. Maybe you could think of the country squire. If this won't get me too many eye rolls, I'd say Boaz is a little like Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, but as we'll see, he doesn't have the pride. I really like the ESV's translation, a worthy man. This guy's just overall a man of worth. And we're also told that he's of the clan of Elimelech. So he's related to Naomi's husband, who has already died. That's all the intel we're given on him for right now, but obviously, if the story introduces him this way, we know he's going to be really important probably pretty soon. But let's first rehearse what our current situation is. Naomi, the widow of Elimelech, has returned from a long sojourn in Moab outside the promised land of Israel. But now she's returned home to her hometown of Bethlehem, and she's not come back alone. She's brought back with her Ruth, her daughter-in-law, also a widow because Naomi's son, her husband, had died also. Ruth has returned with her. She's left her family. She's left her people. She's left everything that's familiar to her. And she has bound herself up with Naomi's destiny. She's taken Naomi's people to be her people. She's taken the Lord God of Israel to be her God. So now you have these two widows. One older, back in her native land. One young, one a foreigner. And they're in Bethlehem. They're living in Bethlehem, but they're in need. And they have no obvious means of supporting themselves. No husbands, no sons, no, none of the obvious means of support for a widow in these days. But there is one way. There's a one way they can support themselves, and that's provided for them by the law of Moses. They have the right of the poor to glean. And gleaning was God's way of making sure that the poor in Israel could sustain themselves. Here's how the law reads in Leviticus 19. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, right? so every year when the harvest time comes, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So at harvest time, the people of Israel are supposed to leave those edges of the field alone, not reap them. And of course, 
inevitably, stalks of grain get left behind here and there as they're gathering up the good grain. But they aren't not allowed to go over the field again and pick those stray pieces up. They have to be left where they lie. And so then afterwards, the poor and the sojourner are allowed to glean the field. And they're allowed to gather up all the stray bits of grain that fell, as well as the grain that's all around the edges of the field. They can take them for their own use. And the reason is, ultimately, all the land in Israel belongs not to individual people, but to the Lord. He is the ultimate landowner. They are borrowing it from him. He wants his land to be used to provide for the needy in the society, in the covenant community. And so Ruth, who fits both conditions, right, she's poor, and she's a sojourner, she tells her mother-in-law that she'd like to exercise their right to go and glean. And this is in the middle of the... You remember, they came back to Bethlehem right at the beginning of the barley harvest. She hopes that she will find a landowner who will look upon her with favor and give her permission to glean in his portion of the field. And she doesn't know, of course, that she's about to be guided to the person who's going to change the course of her life. So read on, please, in verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 2. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So early in the morning, Ruth sets out. She heads out to the harvest field to follow after the reapers. And surprise, 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 where does she end up? She just so happens to enter the part of the field that belongs to Boaz. The Hebrew actually says something like, Her chance chanced that she came to that part of the field. Yeah. Now, to be clear, Ruth is totally clueless at this point, right? She doesn't know this is Boaz's field. She doesn't even know that Boaz exists, let alone that she's related to him by marriage. So this is no kind of strategy on her part. She's just gone to a field to glean. But the language that the narrator clues us in is that there are larger forces at work here. There's no coincidence here. The narrator doesn't really believe in chance. Ruth is being directed. The Lord, who is the God of Israel, the one that Ruth has made her God, he is at work guiding her to this particular field. And she sets about to work. Clueless that any of that's going on. So then several hours later, Boaz comes out from the town. He's checking on how things are going with his harvest. And our first impression of him is is of a good master who enjoys the respect of his laborers. He greets them kindly in the name of the Lord. They respond. They call on the Lord to bless him. And then he notices something. There's a young woman over there, and he doesn't recognize her, and she's gleaning in his field. So he turns to the foreman, And he starts to inquire about her. So let's read verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So the foreman identifies Ruth, not surprisingly, by the thing that obviously distinguishes her. She's the foreigner. She's the lady from Moab, the one who came back with Naomi. And he gives Boaz this account of her actions so far that day. She asked permission to glean, to exercise her right. She asked permission. She's worked hard all morning, ever since the early morning. She's only stopped once to rest. And so what has the Lord done? He has guided this needy woman and directed her to the man. And he's not just any man. Already, you and I know, even if Ruth doesn't know it yet, that he's a worthy man and a near relative. So this is promising. right? We're rooting for Ruth, right? Anybody confused? We're rooting for Ruth. We want her to do well. And this is a good sign. But how's Boaz going to respond toward her? Because he's ready to go speak to her himself. So read verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Have your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. All right. So now, having been guided by God to Boaz... Now she finds favor in his sight. He speaks with her. He offers her welcome. He offers her protection. Not a given for a foreigner, right? He's already made sure, before he even talked with her, he made sure that in his field, working alongside his servants, she will not come to any harm. He told the young man, don't bother her. Now, Ruth is is amazed by this kindness. And so she prostrates herself in front of him and says, why would you do this? Why would you show me this kind of favor since I'm a stranger and an alien? And so Boaz explains to her that he knows already, he's heard about her extraordinary loyalty that she's shown to Naomi. And she forsook everything she knew to become a part of Israel. Now, when I hear Boaz's words, you left your father and your mother and your native land 
and came to a people you did not know before. Do you know what that reminds me of? Who does that remind you of? I, I'm reminded of God's call to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, you remember what God said to him? Go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Ruth's faith has led her, just like it did Abraham, to leave everything behind to follow after the Lord. And Boaz knows this. And so he pronounces a blessing on her. He calls on God to reward her faith to the full. And notice how he describes her faith back in verse 12. She has come to... She's come to put herself under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. She's come under the Lord's wings. That's a beautiful picture of trust. She trusts in the Lord's care and protection. She's come under his protection. And the Lord's wings are indeed a secure refuge. You might hear the words of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 begins, He who dwells in the shelter of of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover you with His pinions, with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. And that's exactly what Ruth's done. But often, often, the Lord uses means. Often the Lord uses means. He provides, He protects, but sometimes He uses a subcontractor to do it, to get the job done. And I wonder if you can see how the Lord is already providing care, He's already providing protection for Ruth, and who is He starting to use to do it? Boaz! Boaz is God's substitute to get this job done, to care for this widow. And she is very grateful. She again rejoices that she's found favor in Boaz's sight, that he's comforted her with words. He's comforted her with his assurance of his protection. And now we get to see that Ruth continues to show Ruth an extraordinary uh, line of favor. Read in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, right, so this is probably the, the, the lunch, this is lunchtime. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reader, reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. So Boaz invites her. She's, She's just a foreigner gleaning in his field. He invites her to be part of the meal just as if she was like the rest of his household. And what does he offer her? He offers her bread and wine and roasted grain and she eats everything that she can 
hold, and she even has an abundance. So when lunch is over then, he takes his reapers aside, and he, he talks to the young men, and he says, listen up, I want you to start being a little bit careless in your work. Don't do too good a job this afternoon. And he says they should let her glean even among the piles of the harvested grain. They mustn't shoo her away. And then he really ups the end. In fact, he says, I want you even to intentionally take out some grain from the bundles and leave it for her to find, right? Kind of like Easter eggs when you're, when, you're, uh, when you're throwing out the Easter eggs for the four-year-olds, right? You don't just put them in the hide- hardest of hiding places. You've got to put it right on the doorstep. Oh my goodness, there's an Easter egg. Well, he wants that kind of to be how they approach the grain. He wants them intentionally leaving stuff for her to find. This is way more than the law requires. I hope you understand this. It's over-the-top generosity on Boaz's part. So she's secure. She's secure among Boaz's people, all of whom are trying their best to help her out. And she works all the way through the afternoon. And at the end of the day, she winnows what she's gathered, right? She separates the wheat from the chaff. She actually she doesn't want to bring home a big big sheaf of grain. She wants to just, uh, just take back what she's going to eat. She ends up with an astonishing amount. And Aoife, right? Do you want to... So think about one of those great big bags of dog food. That's how much she, she brought of, of, of winnowed grain, even from one day of, of gleaning. That's how much. She got several weeks of food from a single day. Man, it's been a really, really good day. Right? You go out to work sometime and you're like, I wonder how today's going to go. This day went really well. <laughs> she's found a great place to work. She's found favor in Boaz's eyes. She's found welcome and kindness and protection. So now let's see how Naomi is going to respond to all this. Look at verse 18. And she took it up, the barley, all the barley that she had, and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man with whom the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now remember last week how Naomi was feeling. Right? We heard when she comes back into the gates of Jerusalem, we heard her deep lament. What does she say? The Lord has brought me back empty. He has dealt very bitterly with me. And then we saw this glimmer of hope that they had returned at the beginning of the barley harvest. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord was getting ready to turn the story around. And now look, Ruth's coming home and she's lugging this huge bag of grain. I'm not sure what Naomi expected when she agreed to let Ruth go out and glean that morning, but I'm sure this had to exceed all of her expectations. And then... Ruth pulls out her leftovers from lunch and they microwave it up and Naomi eats it. <laughs> so quite naturally, Naomi asks, where did you end up? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Obviously, this amazing haul has had to come about because of somebody's kind intention. And so Ruth tells her, this, the guy's name is Boaz. All right, pick it up in verse 20. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So again, Naomi breaks out in praise. I want you to look more closely now at verse 20 again. There's something very beautiful going on in verse 20. She says, May he, Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forgot, forsaken the living or the dead. And so she's pronouncing blessing on Boaz, of course, but whose kindness is she talking about? May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Whose kindness is this that hasn't forsaken her or her dead? It's not actually clear. It's not clear in the English. It's not clear in the Hebrew. It could be the kindness of the Lord. And Naomi is delighting. She realizes God has not in fact abandoned them as she had thought. The Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. On the other hand, it could be it could be a reference to Boaz's kindness because that worthy man has not forgotten to be gracious to his impoverished kin. But here's what I think. I think whatever she might mean, and I'm not totally sure I know, I think we, the audience, are supposed to realize it's actually both. Right? Neither the Lord nor Boaz have forgotten loving kindness to this little family. Because ultimately, Boaz is an agent. He's the instrument of God's kindness to them. God is showering them with his provision through Boaz. He is protecting them through Boaz. And Naomi tells Ruth, there's something you need to know about this guy. He's our near relative. In fact, he's one of our redeemers. Okay, Redeemer, right? We think we know what that means. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. This term, Redeemer, Kinsman Redeemer, your Bibles might say, the Hebrew word is Goel. It requires just a little bit of explanation. It's another provision in Israelite family law. It's from Leviticus 25. So the near relatives in your clan have responsibilities to you. So if you become impoverished, you have to sell yourself into slavery, say. Your kinsmen redeemers can come and buy you back out again. Or if you become so poor, you have to sell your land. Then your redeemers have a duty to buy it back if it's possible so that it can remain within the family. And we'll see later in the book, if you die and you're childless, then there are obligations on the redeemers to raise up heirs in the name of the dead. And... Wow, lo and behold, surprise again, Boaz just happens to be one of the men in Elimelech's clan who's related closely enough to them that he can act as a redeemer. And did you notice? He's a blessed redeemer. Right? Over and over again, Boaz 
has blessing pronounced upon him. First back by his own staff in verse 4, but then more significantly in this conversation with Naomi twice. Blessed be Boaz. Blessed be the one who took notice on her. Blessed be the one who, of the Lord whose kindness is not forgotten. Boaz is a blessed redeemer. His loving kindness to Ruth calls forth blessing. Oh, Ruth has found a redeemer. The one to whom God directed her, the one in whose eyes she found favor, is a blessed redeemer. So she goes on, she shares Naomi the rest of the good news. Boaz has has told her to stay with his people and glean through the end of the harvest, right through. Of course, Naomi approves. She says in Boaz's field, then she's safe. She's going to be free from harassment and the possible danger she might face and encounter in a different field. No, stay close to Boaz's young women. Because remember, this all takes place when? The days when the judges ruled, when everyone's running around doing what is right in their own eyes, not the safest environment for a young single woman. So stay near to his people, she says. And that's exactly what she does. Ruth works gleaning alongside Boaz's young women for the next seven weeks or so, right through to the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. Every night, every day she gleans, every night she returns to Naomi. All right, well, we've reached the end of Act 2, if you will. Where does the passage leave us? I might suggest that we're supposed to feel both excited and restless. I mean, it's amazing what God's done already. Ruth, a Gentile, who has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, she has been directed to find favor in the eyes of a Redeemer. That is really good news. He has prayed for her. He has asked the Lord to grant her full reward for her faith. All that's awesome. So why would we still be restless? Well, it's because Boaz's generosity has provided for them really wonderfully through the harvest. But now the harvest is over. What's going to happen now? Their basic situation hasn't changed. They're still two impoverished widows. They've experienced a measure of protection, a measure of provision, a down payment, maybe. But how is the Lord going to Bring about Ruth's full reward that Boaz mentioned. How is his excellent prayer going to be answered? Is it just possible that the Lord might continue to use Boaz as his chosen instrument to answer his own prayer? Well, you'll have to tune in next week for that one. Meanwhile, there's plenty of truth for us to think about from this week's episode. So let's start by looking at the big picture. What's, what big picture happens in chapter 2? The Lord guides and directs the needy one to find favor in the eyes of a blessed Redeemer. But friends, you have to see that this story is about so much more than the fortunes of one young Moabite widow. This is a 
microcosm of the story of the ages. This is actually what God has been doing since the beginning of history and what He's going to continue to do until the end of history. The Lord is always directing the needy to find favor in the eyes of the Redeemer that He has chosen. Always and forever, God has been directing the gaze of people toward the Redeemer and His name is Jesus Christ. So my brothers, my sisters, and my unbelieving friends here today, I want you to listen. Whatever your situation, this is what God is doing with you right now. He is considering you in all of your neediness, and He has raised up Jesus as a Redeemer who is able and willing to provide for you. And so right now, He is pointing you to the only one who can meet your needs. Your true needs, mind you. Your spiritual need, ultimately. Because here's the truth. If you're not in Christ, then it doesn't matter how well you're doing financially. And it doesn't matter how well you're doing health-wise or how well your job's going. That's all irrelevant. Because the reality is that you're a sinner This is the Bible's witness to you. You're a sinner and your soul is morally bankrupt. You lack the perfect righteousness that you will need if you're to stand before God on the last day. So you are penniless. You have nothing to commend yourself to Him. And without someone who will provide for you, without someone to give you the righteousness that you do not have, you will surely die. As Ruth would have died without a provider and a redeemer for her, without a provider and a redeemer to give you the righteousness you don't have, you will surely die, and you will die forever. Eternally impoverished. Eternally destitute. Separated by God from Him and from everything that is good in a place called hell. That No matter how you feel today, that is your condition, that is your need. But Jesus stands ready to meet that need. Think about how worthy a Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a kinsman Redeemer. Because of His great love, He chose to become one of our clan. He's really one of us. Though He's the Son of God, He made Himself like us and took on our humanity. He became flesh and He dwelt among us. So He's close kin to you. He's your close kin. And therefore, as kinsman redeemer, He has the responsibility to buy His poor relatives back and lift them up out of their hopeless situation. And so just as God directed Ruth to Boaz... He directs people to His Son. Think about when Jesus came down. God used John the Baptist, didn't He? John bore witness that God's Redeemer had in fact come. What did John do? He pointed. He pointed not to Himself. He pointed to Jesus. And He said to people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, there He is. He was God's instrument pointing people to Jesus. He's the one. He has what you need. He gives you what you lack. Look to Him. 
Or remember what happened when Jesus took three of his disciples up to the top of the mountain and he was transfigured and revealed to him, revealed to them in all of his glory. And then the glory cloud covers the mountain. And the voice of the Father comes out of heaven and what does it say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, God is directing their gaze, directing their attention to his Son, pointing them to his Son. This is how Jesus himself said it in John 3. He reminds Nicodemus of the old, old story when the Lord had sent fiery serpents among the people because of their wicked grumbling. And, and when they were in distress, they cried out to the Lord. What did God do? He had Moses put, make a serpent of bronze and put it up on a pole. And if anyone had received the poison bite of a serpent, they could look at that bronze serpent up on the pole, and if they looked, they would live. And so Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus is saying to you, to me, I'm going to be lifted up too. I'm going to be transfixed upon a cross. And anyone and everyone who looks to me with faith will live. See, friends, every single one of us has the serpent's poison running through our veins. It's called sin. And every one of us is dying from it. But God has provided one for us to look to so that we can live. He's guiding and directing all of us to the Redeemer. He's calling to you, saying, Look, there is my Son. He is my worthy one. Look to Him and live. So, unbeliever, would you do that today? Do you hear God speaking to you? Okay, Think about what's happening right now. You just so happened to have wandered into this field this morning. Your chance chanced that you would come here today. What does that mean? It means God made an appointment with you. And he intends for you to have an encounter with his son. And he has sent me to tell you that there is hope for you right now. Hope in the middle of your poverty, hope in the middle of your sin and your neediness. Jesus Christ is available to you. You are not here listening to this word by chance. Jesus Christ is available to you. And if you will go to him, you will find favor in his sight and he will redeem you And He will provide for you lavishly. He will give you all the righteousness that you need out of His wealth of righteousness. And you will be satisfied. And you'll have an abundance. So don't go looking for any other field for help. God's directing you to Jesus. Because He's the Redeemer. He's the only Redeemer. He's the one that you need. Go to Him. God is directing you. Now for my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's all sorts of good news here for us as well. First off, let me encourage you. Do you ever marvel at the circumstances that God used 
to direct you to his son? If you think about how you came to know and believe in Jesus, do you ever marvel at the circumstances? What was your chance that chanced to bring you under the hearing of the gospel? How did you just happen to meet that one person who was the first one to tell you about Jesus? How did the Lord guide you? Think about the circumstances that he orchestrated. Think about the obstacles and the roadblocks that he overcame. Maybe that you put up in front of him and he overcame them so that he could introduce you to the Redeemer. Isn't it amazing? And if you think, well, actually, my story, that's not much of a big deal. I was just born into a Christian family. Well, my dear dingbat, how do you think that happened? (laughs) What wonderful grace of the Lord that he would give to you the priceless gift of growing up, hearing about Jesus and his love for sinners? Whatever your story is, God was orchestrating it. So don't neglect to give praise and to thank the Lord for his work to guide you to Jesus, whatever it was that that brought you. And then understand, God is still providing Jesus for you. It's not a one and done. He's still directing you to look to Jesus. And he wants you to rely on Jesus completely to provide for you and redeem you and protect you. How do we do that? How do we do that? I'll give you several ways that I thought of. For starters, he wants you to self-consciously entrust yourself to Christ. Don't go on Christian autopilot and just make your way through your week not thinking about how he's actively working in your life. What do you need? Do you need food? Do you need covering? Don't think that's just hours on the job times so many dollars per hour. No, it's the Lord that provides for you. What did we pray before the sermon? Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us a 401k that will last us for a long... No! He's providing for us day by day our needs. Acknowledge him as the one who gives it to you. Thank him for that. Secondly, rely on the spiritual nourishment that our Redeemer provides. See, Jesus has given himself to you. His flesh, he says, is true food. His blood is true drink. That means that if we are to that we, means we are to look to him continually and feed on him by faith and be satisfied. And how does he feed us? Well, with the food of his word. The food of his word. Are you feeding there? And then he invites us to refresh our faith at his table, where he, like Boaz, brings out bread and wine and shares it with us. So make full use of the table. Don't let it become a mindless thing. Realize that it's a means by which Jesus feeds your faith. Week in, week out. And lastly, I'd mention the importance of finding protection in Jesus by staying close to his people. Right? This is one of the ways that Boaz has protected Ruth, wasn't it? As long as she stayed with his young women, 
she would be safe. No one would harm her. So what about you? Are you staying near Jesus' people? Are you taking advantage of the protection that their company affords? Or are you holding yourself aloof? That's, that's dangerous. Keep yourself with his people. Love the church. Let your brothers and sisters be your close companions. It is one of the ways that the Redeemer guards you. But at the end of the day, are you a believer? Look to Jesus. God's directing you to look to Jesus, your Redeemer. Are you an unbeliever? Look to Jesus. He's the Redeemer that's been appointed for you. For every one of us, whether at this moment we're in Christ or not, God is directing us to his Son. And he calls us to look to him that we might live. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that in our poverty and in our need, you raised up for us the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is, as the song we sang says, he is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Lord, I pray for my friends here today that don't yet know Christ, that they would see in Jesus an able and a willing Savior, and they would see their need for him and come to him by faith. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would not stop, we would not neglect to come to him and to look to him for his redemption, but that we would continually do it and be fed by him until we get to heaven. Oh, Father, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.